and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Promises, Promises edition. Today is February 27th. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell, and with me today in the newsroom studio are columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Provincial Affairs reporter Karen Cleese. Hi. And senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello, everyone. For this week's podcast, we are going to look ahead to what's coming up next week when the legislature heads back into session and hopefully talk a little bit about what these things will mean to everyday Albertans. There's going to be two formal events that always generate all kinds of stories and analysis, a speech from the throne and the provincial budget. The throne speech will come Monday, the first day MLAs resume sitting, and then the 2014-15 budget will be delivered Thursday. Why don't we start in chronological order talking about these things? The last time we had a throne speech was May 2012, fresh after the last provincial election. Uh, That speech promised new transparency laws and and basically had all kinds of things that rebundled the Premier's campaign promises. So, Karen, what signals have we been getting from the provincial government about Monday's speech and the upcoming session overall? In one word, nothing. Uh, As usual, Redford is... Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Um, As usual, Redford is uh, hard to catch. She doesn't come out of her office very often. She certainly doesn't talk to reporters very often. So we haven't had any signals from her about what's coming. Uh, Robin Campbell was uh, was caught by reporters coming out of the cabinet meeting on Tuesday, I believe, and uh, my colleague Mary Ibrahim, who was there, said that he was uh, was very cagey and didn't say anything about what's coming in the next session. Now, this is a, I think we need to highlight for our listeners here that this is both of these things are a strange departure from what we've seen in the past. Um, throne speeches are usually done every year at the beginning of each session. Redford has chosen to extend a session for so long, that's longer than a year at this point, uh, nearly two years actually, uh, before we've heard a throne speech. And the purpose of a throne speech is to give people a sense of what the government is doing for them, uh, what their agenda is going to be, what their priorities are going to be, that kind of thing. Um, also, in the past, we've heard from former House Leader Dave Hancock. He typically holds a press conference giving reporters some insight into mm-hmm. what's coming. Uh, we And we also haven't seen that from the Redford government. So uh, we do hear lots about transparency and accountability, but we don't actually hear much from the government itself about what they're doing and why. So this throne speech will give Albertans an opportunity to hear for the first time since Redford was elected what her actual priorities are. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait and see on Monday. What, and, and, you know, the government has started just rolling out legislation you know, it'll it'll be Wednesday morning and we'll find out about a massive piece of legislation that, you know, nobody knew was coming, like the pension laws from last session. So, mm-hmm. OK, so, Paula, what do you think? Does the throne speech actually matter to Albertans? I mean, we didn't have one last year, but let's face it, the province did not collapse from lack of a throne speech. Yeah, it's easy to be cynical about the throne speech. And I am I find it easiest of all to be cynical about the throne speech because of my own experience with them directly. Little known fact, before I got my first job as a reporter, my very, very, very first job out of J school, don't hit me, Karen, was working for the Public Affairs Bureau on a three-month contract for the Department of Tourism. I had been working for the people of Alberta for about two weeks when I was called into my boss's office and told it would be my responsibility, 22-year-old Paula, to write our department section of the speech from the throne which I did so what kind of lavish tourism promises did you make (laughs) what what I really remember is that when I took my draft to my director he told me that the speech was great but it needed to be a bit more impactful and it was at that moment that I realized that I would not have a career with the Public Affairs Bureau (laughs) Um, and I fortunately you moved on yes but but so it is 
easy to say that the throne speech is just a pro forma thing full of platitudes that doesn't really mean anything. But in fact, it has a really important part in our parliamentary democratic tradition. The throne speech is supposed to lay out the government's vision for the future. Not only that, it gives the opposition an opportunity to debate the throne speech. If you don't have one, you stymie and cut off a lot of potential for proper debate in the House. And the fact that we didn't have a throne speech last year was truly uh, extraordinary. It was the first time since 1912 that there hadn't been an annual throne speech in this province. So, you know, for someone like me, who's a bit of a parliamentary procedure nerd, I love the pomp and the pageantry of the throne speech, the reminder that the lieutenant government is there representing the crown and the queen. These things are an important part of our parliamentary democracy. And of course, in Alberta, where this government has been in power for so long, and where for so long they've thought of the opposition as just, you know, uh, an inconvenience. It's terrible to me to see that we can just throw out parliamentary tradition and and not pay attention to the role of the House in a democratic government. And the question then, Paula, is why? I think that's a really interesting question to ask, is why haven't we seen a throne speech in two years of governing? I think that's an excellent question. And I I think one of the things that's interesting is that even even in the throne speech of two years ago, we didn't get a hint of some of of Redford's major agenda, for instance, what it's doing, what it's done to labor in the last 18 months. There was no hint of that hard line coming in that throne speech two years ago. And I don't know if there will be this time. Yeah. Do you think that this throne speech will perhaps try to mend fences, build bridges with the public sector? Well, that's a really good question. Is is she finished? I mean, they they've got they've gotten you know zero percent increases for the next few years from just about everybody, and it culminated with this legislation that's now ended up in court, and courts have stalled it, um, which was pretty heavy-handed. So, are they ready to change their position on that and soften the story on position on labor? I don't see signals of that, but I'd sure be looking for that in the throne speech. Well, absolutely, and I, it sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but I do think. You know, I think Albertans need to ask themselves whether the government has a responsibility to tell them what the plan is. Because either you could conclude that there is no vision and there is no plan, or you could conclude that there's a secret plan and a stealth vision, and neither of those you would presume is the message a government would like to send to a populace. Precisely, a go- especially a government that, that you know, holds up transparency and accountability as one of its key values, right? Well, it's easy to be transparent if there's nothing in the glass. <laughs> if you were perhaps back on the Public Affairs Bureau payroll <laughs> and had been given... On, on the sunshine list. That's I mean, the, the, my, my paycheck would be higher. That would be for certain. <laughs> and had been given the opportunity to advise the, the Premier and the government about what they should include in the throne speech. What would you put in? I'll tell you what I personally would put in first. I would make sure that I gave municipalities a big shout out because as Paula and Graham have talked about in previous episodes, the opposition are aggressively courting the big cities. Though Daniel Smith is trying to uh, turn the page on her relationships with Edmonton and Calgary. And I think they've actually done a not bad job of that. So I would be making sure I was spelling out quite clearly for Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer and Lethbridge and Fort McMurray, what you could expect in the upcoming year from the my government. But that's just my two cents. How about how about you, Sheila? What would you put in? Well, I I I, I would notice um, that she's probably wishing that she had the Keystone Pipeline 
when this throne speech was happening. And it's not going to happen for a couple more months, Obama tells us. So I think sh- there should be some signal in there and maybe about new greenhouse gas regulations or some issue, some way to address the environmental concerns that are still being held up uh, by opponents of the Keystone XL down there. I'd be quite surprised if there wasn't some reference to that in the throne speech. Right, yeah. They, we, they clearly are still talking about that yeah, in Washington, she do- she does from our front page today. Yeah, she doesn't have the pipeline in the bag yet. So. Well, and at the risk of sounding solipsistic here, I would, in light of Karen Cleese's magnificent fatal care series and the huge public response to the uh, the revelation that 741 children had died in uh, care of the province or while receiving care services, uh, most of those deaths completely unacknowledged by the government, I would, considering that this is probably their only big public policy win of the last six weeks, I would stress no matter how sincere I was, that we were going to, you know, that my government was going to do something about the state of child welfare in this province. Only public policy win, Paul. I don't know if that's fair. They did have a successful early drinking, and that seemed to be very popular. <laughs> so I would say that was pretty seat of the pants, though. You well, can't tell me they'd been thinking a lot. And that morning, I was working the night cop shift, and so I went into a press conference with the police officers in, on the eve of the the relaxed liquor laws and uh and they told me that it was all done so quickly mm-hmm. uh they learned through the tweet that everybody else learned through and so it was if you can imagine the paramedics the police all of those frontline services were just bowled over and had to pull in all these people yeah but but <laughs> it, it all seemed to go off without a hitch so i i well, you know, loved it Let's turn to the provincial budget and what we might be expecting from this document. Karen, does the third quarter update provide any insight? So politicians are notoriously cagey in advance of the budget. They don't want people to know what's coming. Uh, There are good reasons for that. But the third quarter update yesterday uh, does give us some really interesting uh, food for thought. Uh, Most importantly, I would say that that the government uh, reported yesterday that we that we brought in $2.7 billion more than we expected to bring in in the first three quarters of 2013-14, which is a remarkable a figure, $2.7 billion. And of that, $2.2 billion was from oil and gas, or pardon me, oil revenues, bitumen and crude. So that tells us something about the government's financial position. We didn't hear hardly anything about the bitumen bubble and the differential. Um, and we basically just have money rolling in. And this traditionally, and maybe Paula can talk a little bit more about this, is when money starts rolling in, things get better for governments in Alberta. Uh, so we're, I think it's possible, and I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but it's possible that we might see our first budget in the black in six years, because we've had six consecutive deficit budgets. Um, all of Redford's budgets and a goodly number of, of Stelmax budgets were, were deficit budgets. We could see a, a budget in the black this coming session. And that would be a huge, huge political victory for this party because, I mean, they have been lambasted in quite efficiently by the Wild Rose for putting the province back into debt and back into deficit. If Redford could put out a budget that at least purports to be balanced, uh, that would be a big political victory for her. So a couple of other figures I'll just add for listeners who haven't had an opportunity to read the paper. Um, our deficit in the budget at the beginning of the 2013-14 fiscal year was a, a, expected to be $1.7 billion, and they whittled that down to three point 
pardon me, 335 million. Uh, the government's also reporting uh, an estimated $1.4 billion surplus at the end of the year. Now, there's some complicated mathematics around what we have to do with surpluses. In Alberta, there are now laws that say we have to save that, some of that money. And the and Finance Minister Doug Horner told us yesterday that he expects our he expects our savings account, which is called the contingency fund, to hit four point six billion by the end of the year. So all in all, you know, a, a rising tide in Alberta. And I think that's gonna have some really significant political and, implications and, for and the Redford government. And when you think about what the government had to pay out to deal with the flooding this late spring, early summer. I mean, that's really quite remarkable. How much of that can be credited to the excellent fiscal management of the provincial government is an entirely different question. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> this has got to do with rising oil prices, and we know when we pay $1.15 a litre for our gas at the pump that that's a real phenomenon. And, and, let's, the, and let's not forget the billion dollars in health care funding they got. A bi- Another yes, windfall. Right. A billion from dollars from the feds, but also the lowered Canadian dollar. And this makes a huge difference. I mean, we as consumers love it when the Canadian dollar is high because we can go to the United States and we can buy stuff and our dollar goes further. But every time the dollar goes up, it's a huge hit to the Alberta budget. When the dollar falls, then the money that we make by selling oil outside the country is dis- becomes disproportionately larger. And so the fact that Canada's economy is softening gives Alberta this bump. But that's no big credit to the Redford government's management. One last number I'll jump in with is $9.7 billion, and that is our total real debt, which includes... Um, Alberta is no longer debt-free, which I think will probably be news to some of our listeners. Uh, we have $9.7 billion. The vast majority of that is in capital spending. So the government's been uh, quite, quite clear. The goal is to not go into debt for operational spending, uh, which is, you know, program spending, uh, but $9.7 billion for capital spending, so schools, roads, etc. Will there be arguments if the government comes out on Thursday with a surplus a budget, Will there be an argument about that then? Because they've got this new format, right? They've got the they've broken it as you kind of explained into the operating and the capital and the savings component. So, will there be people who say that in fact this isn't a balanced budget? Absolutely. Well, in fact, that's exactly what you'll hear. The Wild Rose will say, if we had an actually balanced budget, we would not have nine point seven billion in a capital infrastructure debt. Now, the government's because the the Wild Rose would say, well, that's like saying. Yeah, I'm paying for all my groceries with my paycheck, but I owe, you know, 5000 for my furniture and my refrigerator, right? It's it, the capital costs are still, that's still debt for the province. That's what the Wild Rose will say. What the government will say is we're earning more on our savings than we are on our debt. So if you have a 0% financing loan on your car, then why wouldn't you put your money into your 2% ING savings account, right? That's basically the logic that the government's going with. It's going to be uh, just a... a, a a challenge explaining some of this debt, which is like a mortgage, and accumulated deficits, operating deficits. And I don't know how much of that number you used is accumulating operating deficits, but we won't have those anymore. So presumably that's going to be paid down. So um, it is is going to be interesting. The other thing I think is going to be interesting, she went out of her way last time to portray not quite austerity, but money was tight and they Mm. had to whack universities and whack the unions and all this. So is she going to stick to that line, which I think they like that line because it helps them keep spending in control. And how do you stick to that if you are in the black and you've had these huge amounts of revenue coming in including a billion from the federal government. How do you continue to tell people, oh, things are tight? Or are we going to see some new spending, which would open them up to attacks by the wild rose? But, you know, and I have to say, not to sound as though I still work for the Public Affairs Bureau, <laughs> I mean, 
this province, I mean, we sometimes now like to rewrite history and forget that one of the reasons we ended up with no debt under Ralph Klein is that we just didn't pay to fix anything for the longest time. I mean, we're still coping with the infrastructure deficit and debt that were created by those years of Klein austerity. And so, for example, when we're investing money in school repair, I mean, we're paying more now to fix the schools because you know their roofs are falling in or they're full of mold than we would have done if we'd just done the routine maintenance all along. I mean, I too can save more money for a big trip to Europe if I don't replace the roof on my house, but that's not really very good household management. Same question as the throne speech. If you were miraculously given a hand in the budget, what would you put in it? Sheila? I would reframe what you're doing to post-secondary. They really whacked them last year. They lost a lot of support in a constituency that Redford appealed to when she was running for the leadership race and the election. If they want to win those people back, you can't give them another 8% cut and you can't use them as a whipping boy for you know expensive expenditures. Paula, they've moved you from speech writing to finance. What would you do? Well, I mean, really, truly, if I were queen of Queen of Alberta, haha. <laughs> um, really, truly, if I had, You're not? If, I had, if I had public policy suasion, I would tell them that they need to get rid of the flat tax and put in a progressive income tax, and I would tell them that they need to have a sales tax, but they're not going to do any of those things. So the thing that I might actually suggest that they do is that they signal that that billion dollars that they're getting from the federal government for health transfer, don't just stick it into general revenue. Make sure that you tell Albertans that you're going to spend it on health. Right. And I would kind of take Sheila's advice from the throne speech and make a... I would not just wait for the federal government to act on the carbon levy. I would introduce changes immediately or tell Albertans when that was going to happen in this budget because I think that needs to change if Alberta ever wants to have any further social license to build anything outside our borders again. On that great answer for myself, let's... (laughs) And it was brilliant. It was. Let's let's move to good stuff from the gallery. After Olav Rokney's fine suggestion last week, we've got another listener recommendation. This one is in-house a little bit. It's from Capital Ideas guru Karen Unland, and she suggests a double-barreled recommendation, both from local podcasts. And this is a recommendation I can totally get behind. She recommends the Unknown Studios conversation with Mayor Don Iveson and a conversation between Mac Mail and Graham Hicks on the Mac and Cheese podcast on the Mayor's First 100 Days. And those are both great local podcasts, and so I give Karen's recommendation my recommendation as well. Paula, you've got a good stuff for us? I'm going a little bit further afield today. I'm going to recommend an absolutely fascinating piece from the London Review of Books. It's a very, very long piece by novelist Andrew O'Hagan, but it really repays your reading. O'Hagan was hired to be the secret ghostwriter to uh, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks fame, and he was hired to create a, a, a quote-unquote autobiography of Assange. It didn't work out quite that way, and it is an absolutely fascinating, very novelistic piece about what it means to be the ghostwriter for somebody who doesn't actually want his true story told. And it's, it's really remarkable because it gives you a lot of insight into the psychology of the WikiLeaks movement, into the positive impacts that the release of that information had, and into the very toxic personality of Julian Assange, who really comes across as both a sexual predator and having a cult-like power over his followers. Okay, thanks, Paula. So that again was... We'll, we'll, we'll put the link up, but it's a, a piece, as again, this, this week's edition from the London Review of Books. It's Andrew O'Hagan's uh, behind-the-scenes piece of what it was like to be the failed ghostwriter of Julian Assange. 
Okay, Karen, how about you? Have you had any time to squeeze in any reading in between? I have not done any great reading, but I have to say I have been power watching House of Cards. And I I think that our listeners should also watch that show. It's for political wonks. I'm sure that everybody who listens to this podcast is already, you know, probably way ahead of me in House of Cards. But it is such a fantastic it pleases me greatly that you watch that. I don't. You're. You're. I know you're a very serious, hard-nosed reporter. So I. I like to know that you also do enjoy some pop culture on the side. Oh, power watching. Did I? Did I mention power watching? <laughs> and, and then I was on my way into the office the other day, and there was a debate on Q or some some one of the CBC shows about whether you know it's it's okay to binge watch television, and I I turned it down. The answer. <laughs> Well, the answer is obviously yes. Yes. It's a much more efficient use of your time, and I think speaks well to the probity with which you organize chronology. (laughs) Thanks for those suggestions. That's it for this week. I want to do another shout out to the Capital Ideas podcast that you can find on iTunes. It's another great Edmonton Journal product. They've got episodes up where they've recorded the sessions they hold over the lunch hour and so if you've missed it or just really enjoyed one you can go back and find that so search capital ideas on itunes and they've also got a website capitalideasedmonton.com you can find us on itunes as well let us know what you think with the reviews people have been giving nice reviews on there and also some reviews with constructive criticism so thanks for that and you can find us on facebook.com slash the press gallery where you can put our links and you can also throw up some political conversation if you'd like. We'll be back in the press gallery next week.